I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Earlier this year, I went on a local public radio show called Boston Public Radio to talk about love letters. I told the hosts, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, that our theme for season eight would be love and money. The conversation soon led to prenuptial agreements. Jim was anti-prenup. Or more accurately, he thinks it's weird to negotiate the end of a relationship before you even get married. Marjorie was like, hold on, no, prenups are smart. They are not some big admission that a relationship is likely to fail. For what it's worth, I was with Marjorie on this one. Where are you on the prenup? I have to say, I've never been able to wrap my arms around the notion. You say, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And by the way, sign on the dotted line. Do I think there's a need to have a prenup if you're 20 and have nothing? Probably not. Uh, When you're older, older, second marriage. It it makes a lot of sense. And, And you're not just doing it because you're saying, oh, well, I'm betting on this failing, which is, I think, the mindset that a lot of people have. It's more like I'm protecting another generation of people. I am doing this so that we don't have to talk about it, so that we actually have a plan for the marriage as much as a divorce. You know, so I I know it can seem after that on air debate, I did a call out to listeners and readers of my column. I asked them to tell me about their prenups, why they had agreed to them, whether they regret them. Maybe they did not get one and wished they had. I got some good stories back, but one of them, it really stood out. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Let me say first, I understand why people feel weird about prenups. I think when I was younger and I watched a lot of movies, I assumed prenups were about one of two things. Either a rich guy trying to protect his money, or the only defense against a con artist faking love to get wealth. In both scenarios, someone was villainous. But now I think that's a pretty narrow and immature view because there are all kinds of stories out there about people with prenups who have successful, healthy marriages. Marriages may be even made stronger by this legal agreement they made at the outset. That's why I was drawn to this email I got from a man I'm going to call Nick to protect his privacy. In the email, Nick told me that his prenup is foundational to his marriage. He wrote, Our prenup helped make our marriage possible, and we're going strong eight years in. The more I read, the more I realized I wanted to talk to Nick, but also to Nick's wife, whom we'll call Anne, 
Because in a lot of ways, this is really her story. Hi, my name is Anne. I live in the Boston area and I am in my early 40s and I have mostly worked for nonprofit organizations. To fully understand Anne's role in this narrative, you first need to know her backstory. Anne grew up in a New England household with married parents and a sibling. She loved playing music, running around the yard. She had close friends. Her family was pretty comfortable, financially speaking. I went to private school as a young kid from kindergarten through eighth grade. And then I went to public high school in kind of a wealthy town, though. So I, you know, I always got the impression that my family had enough money and, you know, wasn't worried about it, didn't have to worry about it. I occasionally felt guilty about the cost of private school that my parents complained about. But yeah, generally, I was not worried about money as a kid. When you were a kid, what did you think your adult romantic life might be like? When I was a little girl, I thought I was going to meet Prince Charming and fall in love and get married and everything would be perfect. And then as I got older, I noticed that the adult couples around me didn't seem to be like that and that there are especially some really hard things about being a woman, especially a woman married to a man. I discovered that I'm bisexual. And so I just wanted to, as a teenager, I just wanted to throw out the whole idea of marriage and the traditions surrounding it. I just was not interested. I always had a lot of crushes. That's just part of me. And then in high school, I was in a really terrible relationship that I have now identified as emotionally abusive. I think it pretty seriously warped my expectations for future relationships. I thought that they were all going to be as horrible and stressful or that maybe there was something wrong with me and I wouldn't be able to find a healthy one. Or, But I think the main thing was just not really knowing what a healthy relationship would really feel like. Anne has relationships in college. Some are complicated. She says one particular relationship at school really messes with her self-esteem. She dates someone after that and really loves him, but he has a serious mental health problem that's managed until it isn't. When it comes to love, it's like one trauma after another. Finally, Anne meets someone who promises to be better company. I had never really, like, been with anyone who wasn't, like, deeply troubled in some way or just being a jerk. And then after college, I got into a relationship with somebody who was really, really fun. He just had great taste in music, great politics. We had great sense of humor. We had lots of fun together. But that sense of connection obscures some problems, big ones. This guy wants a lot of her time, and he's a mess with money. Eventually, she realizes... This is because of drugs. He was homeless for part of our relationship. And, you know, I had a job, but he was always asking me, like, what time I was getting off of work and where I was going and wanted to meet up with me every single day. And it, it just got to be too much. Officially, Anne and this man are a couple for about a year. But he sticks around as a person in Anne's life, sometimes as a friend, sometimes as a friend with benefits, but mostly as a dependent. Anne cares and worries about him. She was in love with him, after all. So she helps him, emotionally and financially, even though they're no longer an official couple. She gets herself so enmeshed in his needs that she can't find a way out. Toward the end of it, he started doing a lot of cocaine and was spending a lot of my money on that. 
or at least his money and some of mine, it was kind of mixed together. It was kind of hard to track. And uh, we'd be in situations where something would happen, like we'd get to the end of the month and he'd say, "Uh uh-oh, my rent is due and I don't have enough money and I need to pay the rent. You don't want me to get kicked out of my apartment, do you? I felt like I had to pay for stuff for him because he had spent the money on coke earlier in the month. And, you know, this happened with the electric bill and stuff, too. He didn't have his own bank account, so he would pass his money through mine in a later stage of the relationship. Anne dates other people during this time. At one point, she falls for a woman who doesn't want to be in a relationship with her. There are other almosts, but it probably doesn't help that Anne is so tethered to her ex. She feels a little trapped. It's about five years into this uncomfortable, undefined relationship with the ex that Anne connects with someone different, someone with potential. Enter Nick. Anne and Nick actually already knew each other through their shared faith community. They'd even gone out once. We went on one date and things kind of fizzled. We realized we were 10 years apart in age. I told him I was mostly gay because I was trying to scare him off. The age thing was an issue for Anne. She was 26 and he was 36 at the time. But also, he was a nice guy with no real obvious problem. Anne, at that point, hadn't really known what to do with that. She'd been conflating sparks with drama because that's what she was used to. I didn't really feel like there was much chemistry. Some of the thoughts I had were, well, I mean, I would never have to take him to the emergency room. Like, there would be nothing, there would be, like, no events happening. Like, what what would we talk about? A year and a half after that first fizzling date, though, it's 2009. Anne and Nick hang out again at a contra dance event. That's a type of folk dancing. Anne had seen Nick over the years, and she had thought about him. And so you reconnect. Talk about that. As we were dancing together, we were kind of looking into each other's eyes, and I had been thinking about him, and he'd been thinking about me, and I, yeah, I just, all of a sudden, I felt that there was chemistry. It was the way that he held me and moved and and looked at me, and yeah, I just started to find him attractive, basically. And then there was a waltz, and so we waltzed together, and then we just walked off into the night and kissed each other under a tree, and that was, that was the beginning. So... That's very sweet. So how did it proceed from there? Well, from there, I was still scared that this was not going to work out, that I was not going to fall in love with him because I felt like I could only be in love with someone who was troubled or in need or where there was more drama happening. But I went to visit him. He lived about an hour, an hour and a half away from me. So we didn't see each other a lot. We didn't see each other by accident. We just started visiting. And slowly, over the course of a couple of months of visiting, I started to really be able to imagine what a relationship with him would be like. And I, and I really liked it. It was a really beautiful thing. Nick is great company. He works in education. He wants to go to grad school. They have shared values, a very similar outlook on life. They're dating at a really comfortable pace, and it's going well. But Anne is still tied to this other guy. I was definitely still entangled with my ex-boyfriend at the time financially. I was definitely at least still paying his phone bill. After a few months with Nick, Anne decides, I need this ex off my bills, out of my life. 
I remember this one phone call with my ex, which was shortly after Nick and I had gotten together. And I think I just had a little bit more confidence in myself and my kind of prospects for future relationships or future happiness. And I also had PMS and was pissed off and did not really want to talk to him. So he he called me and said, hey, what are you doing this afternoon? What are you doing this evening? What are you doing after that? Hey, do you think I could come over? And I just got sick of it. I mean, I was already sick of it, but I finally said something like, I am so sick of this. I just don't want to do this anymore. I think he didn't call me again after that. I think also knowing that Nick was there was a part of the reason that he kind of finally let go of me a little bit. I felt like he was hanging on to me so tight. I remember the first time, after the first time I visited Nick, I was telling my ex about it. And Nick lived in a rural area at the time. And I told him about, you know, oh yeah, we went on this walk and we patted some sheep. And my ex said, he has sheep? Oh man, I'm never gonna be able to compete with this guy. The paperwork thing with a phone is a hassle, but Anne gets her freedom, the financial kind and the emotional. She's in a new relationship that feels healthy. Nick is great. He does live near sheep and all is good. But what happens when things get more serious? When Nick looks at Anne and says, let's take the next step. How does she respond? After all, she's just won her independence from the last guy. And what does Nick think? of the fact that up until pretty recently, Anne kept her ex on her phone bill. Their story continues after a short break. Okay, we're back. So it's 2010-ish, and Anne and Nick are falling in love. They've reconnected at a dance. They are many long distance, visiting each other from about an hour and a half away. At what point did you know this could be something serious and more permanent? I think that didn't take that long, actually. There were a few months at the beginning where I was thinking, uh-oh, like, I really need to be responsible and not break his heart because I, I don't want to get married. But that didn't last that long. Like, after a couple months of just visiting each other and just feeling just feeling so good around each other, I I felt like I could start to just see another way, see that, that I could actually be in a happy, healthy relationship that could last. So we first started talking about marriage about a year into the relationship. And about a year later, we started talking about the possibility of marriage. And, and I was telling him like, no, 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 like I have all this baggage about marriage. Like, it's just, I don't know how it's going to I don't know if this is going to work. And he was telling me about how he thought marriage was actually kind of a beautiful thing. And it started to just help me imagine that that could be possible for me. For his part, Nick is learning more and more about Anne. She is really open about her history, which helps. One day, early in their courtship, they're hiking a local mountain. And Anne mentions taking her ex off her phone bill. In this moment, it dawns on Nick just how complicated Anne's relationship with his ex has been. He could judge her for giving too much or consider her choices irresponsible. It's a lot to consider. Here's Nick. We both are very, you know, honest and open with each other. On these visits during this period when we were dating in a long-distance relationship, we would give each other regular updates about how our lives were going. And 
Yes. So this one day we went on this hike and she was telling me about, she framed it as a milestone. Like I've decided I'm going to get this guy off my phone account. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to make of this. My personal style is to listen and to be non-judgmental. And as I learned more about her, definitely there were times when I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but I'm just not the kind who would say like, what, you did what? Oh, I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. Part of Nick's empathy comes from his own background. He went to an all boys school. He was a late bloomer with romance. When he met Anne, he'd had one previous long relationship with a coworker, but he ended that when he felt pressure. Nick's difficulty with relationships, he says, stems in part from him being a survivor of sexual abuse. So Anne's need for a slow pace actually suits Nick. I was being patient and showing up for her, but, but she was definitely showing up for me too. I was anxious. And the thing is that, you know, she was anxious too. And we took it really slowly, and I think it was... Uh, crucial. We lived about an hour away from each other, a little more. And so some of my friends were like, oh, a long distance relationship, that's not going to work. But it actually worked better, I think, than my the relationship I had with my coworker. Because when I got too worried, then the next day I would have this time to calm down and kind of think it through. On my days off from work, I would go down to the city and visit her. And then once during the work week, we would have a phone call and they were wonderful phone calls because we would just sit there on the phone together. They develop a schedule, visiting, calling, sleepovers. Then, about a year and a half into the relationship, it's New Year's Eve. Anne is visiting Nick. We went for this beautiful walk under the stars on New Year's Eve and he asked me to marry him and it was beautiful. And I told him I absolutely wanted to live together first. There was no way that I could choose to get married without having lived together. And he told me that he was a little crestfallen about that, but there was just no way that I could say yes to that given my life experiences and you know what was going on inside of me. So we decided to move in together. And we set our move-in date for the end of August, and I freaked out for the next eight months, went into therapy because I was so scared. What scared you specifically? Just that things would suddenly go bad. I mean, I was worried about that, like, from the very beginning of the relationship with Nick. I was always worried watching for things to go bad. When's he going to start being mean to me? When's he going to start asking me for money or for just for any kind, you know, sexual things or any kind of thing that I didn't want to do. Like, when's that going to start? And it never did. But I was always waiting for it. They decide to make the move when Nick will be moving anyway into graduate student housing. A couple of nights before we moved in together, I had a dream that I was driving a U-Haul truck and the brakes didn't work. So that kind of sums up how I felt about the whole thing. But then we got there and we we set up our house and every night we were making something for dinner and, and sharing it together and, and sleeping in the same bed every single night and getting to just snuggle every single night. It was so sweet. And I was still, there was still a part of me that was a little scared for a while. But the actual experience of what it was actually like to live together was 
so different from what I had feared. Another thing that helps ease the stress for Anne is her experience with a bank account. Basically, the graduate housing they moved into required the couples be married or have a shared bank account. So because they're not married, she has to do another big scary thing. Enter into a financial relationship with a romantic partner. She and Nick open a joint account and put $100 in just to keep it active. A week or so after they open the account, Anne takes a look to see what's in it. And she can hardly believe it. The $100 they deposited together is still there. Nick has not secretly withdrawn it and spent it. It's just $100, but to Anne, this is a big deal. It's a major exhale moment. After that, we decided that we were each going to contribute equally to the joint account. And for a while, it wasn't even a set amount per month necessarily. It was just, oh, the account's running low. Let's put in some more. Okay, how much do we put in? And we would each put in the same amount. And then we were living together some months later. So we knew that our rent had to come out of there. So we calculated how much to put in. But we each maintained our own bank accounts and we're getting paid from our jobs in our own bank accounts. And we just contributed to this joint one together. It takes about a year for Anne and Nick to be able to start planning a wedding. Anne, though, is still a little reticent, having been so scarred by her past relationships. It was just another way that I could imagine being taken advantage of or losing my autonomy. And this is when they start talking about a prenup. It wasn't at all that we were thinking of getting divorced. I think that's what people think when they hear prenup. They think, oh, you're just getting married, but you're a little worried that you might split up, but you want to have that in place in case you split up. And for us, it was like, no, we've been we've been friends for five years. We dated for two years. We lived together for three years. Like, I was not going to marry somebody without being really, really sure that it was the right thing to do. So Anne and Nick speak to a lawyer friend about how to put their agreement together. The lawyer makes it seem simple and like it can be catered to them. I realized that it helped me just feel more comfortable, feel like whatever I have is still mine and I can choose to share it. Sharing it is something that I choose to do, not something that just automatically happens to everything. In broad strokes, how does this agreement protect you? Would you be entitled to what you brought? Does it just sort of... In however vague, you know, what what is the general vibe of, of the agreement? Yeah, so the agreement is basically that if we were to split up, that we would each keep anything that, well, anything that was ours, anything that we had in our own personal bank account, any inheritance from our families that we, you know, acquired while during our relationship, if we then split up, it would go to the person who inherited it, not be split equally among the pair, Anything that we had that we owned jointly would be split up. Anne and Nick get married in 2014. Four years later, they have their first child. Over time, their joint bank account grows. To this day, almost nine years into the marriage, they maintain multiple accounts. One is for their shared expenses. Then they have their own accounts for themselves. They have never had to revisit that agreement. But they know it's there. It seems to me that 
this was the most romantic thing or one of the most romantic things he could give you was making you feel safe in the relationship. And I wondered if you might speak to that, just sort of the gift he gave you by being cool with this kind of thing and getting it. Right, right. That is, that's exactly true, that his respect for my individuality and my being able to maintain my independence and my own feeling of of safety and comfort and his understanding of my past experience, I think all of that was there in his agreeing to do a prenuptial agreement. I think it really helped me feel safe in the relationship, like so many other things that happened all, all along the way. So many things that weren't the same as some relationships that I've had in the past that really helped me feel safer and happier. It was one more step towards trusting each other more and being closer with each other. I wanted Anne to be as empowered as she could be, you know? It's sort of like, I don't want to say it for myself, but it's true for me too. I I wanted each of us having kind of like our area of a solid base can give us each more confidence as we come together. Anna Nick's story confirms for me that prenups can actually be very romantic. It's not necessarily about two people starting out on marriage and already contemplating a split. It can be about two people like Anna Nick who are sensitive to their partner's needs, histories, and fears. Two people who are choosing to show up for one another in a clear and defined way. I really want to ask the both of you together, how do you think having that prenuptial agreement made your marriage stronger? Mm, more confidence. Yeah, I would say that I feel safer from, you know, I'm always imagining bad things that could happen. And so this is one set of bad things that will not happen. (laughs) Um, I think it also um, just affirms each of us as individuals within our marriage. One of my fears that I had about marriage was losing my own friends and interests and activities and you know, being really afraid that a partner wouldn't respect that. And so this is just one of many, many ways that he's shown me that that I still get to be my own individual within our marriage. What are you saving for that's fun right now together? It would be so nice if we could save for fun things right now, but we just bought a house and we're tapped out. <laughs> uh, but that, like, that's, like, that's way beyond fun. That's our, that's our life. That's our home. The day you closed on the house, how did you feel? So, so joyful. (laughs) We did go out to eat. We did, which is a little bit rare. We went out to eat without our kids. Yeah. Yeah, I felt really joyful and I felt a sense of stability, especially with the pandemic. We we moved twice in 2020 for just pandemic-related reasons and feeling like this was a place that we could settle and just live maybe for the rest of our lives, Mm -hmm. um, just felt really calming and stable. And I also just feel incredibly lucky, too, to be able to do that. Yeah, me too. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Jesse Remedios and Scott Hellman. Anne and Nick's interviews were recorded by Adeline Sear. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. 
Devin Smith and Maddie Mortel do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ali Riza. Our marketing coordinator is Maggie Taylor. Special thanks to Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Love Letters is an advice column. Send your questions and problems to loveletters at boston.com. If you like the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts. We're online at loveletters.show. Will you tell me about the sheep and were they really yours? <laughs> well, they weren't actually my sheep, no, but they lived next to my house. It's really a good thing to have on a date. <laughs> Unless you're on a date with me with my allergies. But anyway, I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. <laughs>